Hi, this is Timothy Pig, and I want to welcome you to Text Driven Podcast, a podcast put out by the Ministry of Fellowship Church in Southwest Florida. Text Driven Podcast exists to equip you to know God and make Him known through text driven preaching and practice. To learn more about Fellowship Church, visit our website, fellowshipchurch.co. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Texture and Podcast as we continue looking at Donald S. Whitney's book, Praying the Bible. Now, what we are doing is we are trying to sharpen our spiritual discipline of prayer. Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, when you pray. It is part of our duty as Christians to be praying people. Uh, The only question the disciples asked Jesus as it applied to uh, these disciplines was, teach us to pray. I I find that question very fascinating that the disciples would ask Jesus to teach them to pray. There must have been something about Jesus' life that was so unique, so special. His prayer time must have been so powerful that the disciples wanted to tap into that power and learn how it was that Jesus prayed. We know that Jesus was a man of prayer. Uh, Jesus would wake up early in the morning, the Bible says, and he would go to pray. We know that Jesus would uh, recuse himself late at night and he would pray. Uh, We know that Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And one of the reasons why Judas knew where to find uh, Jesus was because that garden was a place where Jesus would regularly go to pray. And out of all the things the disciples could have asked Jesus, they could have asked Jesus, Jesus teaches how to preach wonderful sermons like the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaches how to heal people like you have done. Jesus teaches how to raise people from the dead. Jesus teaches us how to multiply food so that when we have a a big gathering, uh, we know how to make sure that there's plenty of food for that gathering. Jesus, teach us how to turn water into wine. Teach us how to walk on water. They could have asked a numerous amount of things. Jesus, teach us how to cast out demons like you have done. But out of everything they saw Jesus do, the one thing they wanted to learn from Jesus was how to pray. And Jesus gave them the model prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power and glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's the outline that Jesus gave for teaching the disciples how to pray. And in Donald Whitney's book, what he's trying to get us to do is to pray the Bible, using Scripture as a guide to help our thoughts uh, in to think upward and Godward in our praying. Because if you're like me or you're like really the typical Christian, prayer is difficult. You probably struggle with praying. If I ventured to say and ask you, 
and had you sitting right here with me and ask you this question, how long do you spend in prayer daily? You probably would hang your head and say, not enough. Or if I was to ask you, what is the one spiritual discipline you wish you did better, Bible study, Bible reading, or prayer? You probably would say, I wish I was better at praying. And the reason for that is Whitney has shown us the problem is we pray about the same old things the same old way. There's no variety. We use the same words, use the same cliches. We might even do them at the, do, do the prayers at the same time. And our prayers just do not seem to reflect what James said, that the prayers of a righteous person works the power of God. They, they seem powerless. We, we earnestly want to pray, but our prayers just seem to be rote memory and have very little power to them. So in the first two chapters, Whitney lays out the problem and he also lays out the solution. And he says the solution to the problem of praying the same old things, the same old ways is praying with an open Bible. And in chapter three and chapter four, he begins to talk to us about the method of praying the Bible. And he utilizes for his test, Psalm 23. So I, I want us to go ahead and grab Psalm 23, open up your Bible to that Psalm. And I want us to think about how we would pray Psalm 23. Now we know this Psalm very well. You probably have heard it read. You might've memorized it when you were a little kid in Sunday school or uh, in uh, Christian school or somewhere like that. But Psalm 23 is a great Psalm to learn how to pray the Bible. And as we begin looking at it, you'll notice in chapter three, what Whitney does is he walks through this Psalm and how to pray it. And he essentially says, wherever your mind goes, when you read a verse, that is how you are to pray it to God. So for instance, in verse one, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And you stop right there and you begin to think about what does it mean for God to be your shepherd and for you to be his sheep. And you just begin to, to pray. He gives an example of it. In chapter 3, if you've got your book, you just go ahead and open it to page 29. And this is what he says at the beginning of chapter 3. He says, you read the first verse, the Lord is my shepherd. And you pray something like this, Lord, I thank you that you are my shepherd. You're a good shepherd. You have shepherded me all my life. And great shepherd, please shepherd my family today. Guard them from the ways of the world. Guide them into the ways of God. Lead them not into temptation. Deliver them from evil. Oh, great shepherd, I pray for my children because I want them to be your sheep. May they love you as their shepherd as I do. And Lord, please shepherd me in the decision that's before me about my future. Do I make that move, that change or not? I also pray for our under-shepherds at the church. Please shepherd them as they shepherd us. Now, you might hear that and you think, okay, Psalm 23, I'm just going to read what Whitney has said on page 29 and page 30 at the beginning of chapter 3, and that's going to be my prayer. 
If you do that, then you're missing the whole point of what Whitney's trying to get us to do. Whitney is trying to get you and me, as we read scripture, let our mind be drawn to the text and whatever thought comes into our mind as we meditate on that part of scripture, that is what we pray. So when we think of the concept of shepherding and the Lord being our shepherd and that first five words there, the Lord is my shepherd, that is what we pray to God. So if your mind thinks about your marriage and how uh, husbands, you're to shepherd your wife, then you pray and ask God to help you to shepherd your wife. Parents, if, if your mind goes to thinking about your children and shepherding your children, then you pray about that. Well, maybe your mind even thinks into the future about how your children are going to end up shepherding your grandchildren. Then you know what? You pray about that also. Maybe in thinking about shepherding, your mind thinks about your job and how you're a manager at your job and as a manager, you lead the people that work for you, and you need to pray about that. Maybe it's a totally different mindset. Maybe you, in reading the first five words of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, you think about the concept of a sheep, and you see that you're a person under authority, and you you pray that you are a good uh, sheep in the in the fold and that you are an obedient sheep and that you uh, follow the direction of the shepherd who is uh, Jesus and you follow the direction of those in authority over you. You think about shepherding and you think about the New Testament as it applies to the role of a pastor and a pastor is called a shepherd and you begin to pray for the pastors at Fellowship Church or you pray for the pastors at your church wherever you attend. This is what it means to pray scripture. I, and I love what he says. Whitney goes on uh, to say this on page 32, last paragraph, right at the end of chapter three. So basically what you are doing is taking words that originated in the heart and mind of God and circulating them through your heart and mind back to God. By this means his words become the wings of your prayers. So what you're doing is you're utilizing the biblical passage in the psalm, that psalm right there, to guide your prayer time. It's kind of the, the guardrails of your prayer time. It, it helps your mind to stay focused. It helps your mind to stay centered on what you are praying about. Now, Whitney brings up a very good point in chapter four. What if your mind wanders to something that the biblical passage doesn't actually mean? So, for instance, he uses as an example uh, in verse number two, verse three, he restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So you, you see verse three says in Psalm 23, he restores my soul. And then in verse four, it talks about the shadow of death. And, and you, your mind goes off into a wandering spell where you think about how someone is not a believer, and the, you know the scripture says that the wages of sin is death. 
So you read that word, verse four, death, and then you remember in verse three, that it is God who restores the soul. And you begin to, to pray almost an evangelistic prayer for that person in your life. Now, Psalm 23, verses three and four is not dealing with an evangelistic emphasis at all. That is not the meaning of the passage. And what Whitney argues in chapter four is that praying, though, evangelistically, because the words of Psalm 23, verse three and verse four, led you to think about evangelism is not a bad thing. Now, I got to be honest with you. This is where Whitney and I see things just a little bit differently. I think it is important that as we read scripture and pray scripture, we do the best that we can to pray in the same arena of what the original author intended it to mean. Now, Whitney does, I got to give him credit, he does at the end of chapter four say that the more that you practice praying the Bible, he has enough faith and hope in the word of God and the spirit of God that our prayers, though once may be out in left field and not be related to the meaning of the passage, over time will actually become related to the passage. Now, let me just show you where he says that in chapter uh, four, okay? This is what he says. In chapter four, he says on page number 42, even better is the fact that when you pray through a passage of scripture, you don't pray empty, repetitive phrases. Talk to God about the words you read in the Bible, and you'll never again pray the same old things about the same old things. That alone is worth the time you've invested in reading this book, isn't it? But it gets even better because the words you use when you pray are not just fresh, new phrases you haven't used in prayer before, as energized as that is. Praying the Word of God means your prayers include inspired words. Now listen, he quotes Joni Erickson Tata in on page 42 and 43. This is what Joni Tata says. I have learned to season my prayers with the Word of God. It's a way of talking to God in his language, speaking his dialect, using his vernacular, employing his idioms. This is not a matter simply of divine vocabulary. It's a matter of power. When we bring God's words directly into our praying, we are bringing God's power into our praying. Hebrews 4.12 declares, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. God's word is living. And so it infuses our prayers with life and vitality. God's word is also active, injecting energy and power into our prayers. There is a supernatural quality to the words of scripture that you pray. Jesus said in John 6, 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So when you pray the Bible, you aren't just praying ordinary words. You are praying the spirit and life. Okay. So what he is arguing is that over time, your prayers are going to end up reflecting the meaning. And because you're praying inspired words, what you are praying will have 
power and life to it. Now, let me ask you, who doesn't want their prayers to have power and life? I know I do. And I love what Whitney says here. He says, by this means, on page 37, the Spirit of God will use the Word of God to help the people of God pray increasingly according to the will of God. And just in the sentence before that, he says this, so while it's true that people may use this method and pray about things that are not found in the text, I contend that will happen much less if people will pray while reading the text. So what is he arguing for? Here's what he's arguing for. Let's put it in a nutshell. You open up your Bible, you open up to the Psalms, and as you read that Psalm, whatever comes into your mind from the words of that Psalm, you are to direct Godward in prayer, taking as much time to pray through line after line of the Psalm. Now, what happens when you come to a Psalm uh, line that you don't understand? You skip it and go to the next one. What happens when you only have one thing to pray about when you read that? You just pray that one thing and then you move on. That's how easy it is. You're praying the Psalms back to God as his words, his thoughts are channeled through your mind and your thoughts and then taken back up to God into his Years, okay, so that's what you are to do. Now, he does bring up one thing in particular. If you pray through the Psalms, you're going to run across a section of Psalms that are called the imprecatory Psalms. This is where uh, David is praying or the psalmist is praying for the destruction of his enemies. And Whitney makes it very clear he does not advocate for praying an imprecatory Psalm for people specifically by name. He says that what that ends up doing is it undermines uh, Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus tells us to love our enemies. But he does bring up a very good way to pray through these psalms. And the way he says to pray through an imprecatory psalm is instead of praying for a person by name, pray for sins in our life by name. Let me just read this to you. He says, you'll come to those sections, this is page 39. He says, you'll come to those sections known as the imprecatory Psalms, those passages where the psalmist calls for God's judgment upon his enemies, people also presume to be God's enemies. But how do you pray through a psalm when it contains verses like this? Psalm 137 verse 9, blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Psalm 58, verse 6, O God, break the teeth in their mouth. Psalm 58, 8, let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Now, how in the world do you pray those passages? Here's what he says. Maybe there's someone at work for whom you are tempted momentarily to pray such things, but it's difficult to do with a pure motive, isn't it? While I believe those sections of Scripture are inspired as fully as John 3.16 and any other part of the Bible, I don't think we should pray verses like these with a specific people in mind. 
To do that would be hard to reconcile Jesus' command in Matthew 5, 44 through 45 that says, Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So I do think, he says on page 40, I do think we can put specific sins in those passages, praying that God will smash their teeth as they attempt to devour our souls. I sometimes pray angrily that all the enemies of God born in my sinful heart will be destroyed as thoroughly as these imprecatory psalms describe. I also believe we can pray these imprecations against national sins, as I sometimes do, for example, against abortion and racism. Ultimately, as we view scriptures Christocentrically, we can put such psalms in the mouth of Jesus. Someday he is going to do far worse than just break the teeth in the mouth of his lifelong unrepentant enemies. Essentially, we can pray these psalms in such a way that reflects the attitude, Lord, I am on your side and against all your enemies. I want your justice and righteousness to win the final victory over sin and rebellion against you. Now, I really like that right there, that Whitney challenges us to pray against the enemies of sin in our nation, but also the enemies of sin that are birthed in our heart, the anger, the malice, the strife, the gossip, the hatred, the cursing, the impurity, the adultery, all the sin that is in our heart, the lying, that we would pray and ask God to smash those sins and destroy them in our lives so that we can honor him. So I know this is a little bit longer episode, but I thank you so much for listening to this episode of Text Driven Podcast. To learn more about uh, our ministries, you can visit our website, www.fellowshipchurch.co. If you're ever in the Southwest Florida area, we would love to have you visit one of our worship services here in uh, Southwest Florida. You can find the times and locations on our website as well. Until next time, I hope you'll continue to live a text-driven life. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.